Hello, everybody. <clears throat> My name is Paul, if we've not met. Um, it's... No, I don't need that. Yeah, Burns, actually, yeah, no, fair enough. I thought you were giving that to me because you thought surely you need notes. Surely you need notes. And Burns, my wife, she knows how well I remember things. <clears throat> ah, it's a little joke there. Um, yeah, I know. Who, where are they going to find anyone to preach on that relationship series? I was listening to that. I'm supposed to preach one of those sermons. I don't have it, right? Good grief. Um, yeah, my... my uh, Starting point, I actually, I just wanted to catch up on one or two things. So last week I got to preach uh, at Sarepta. One of the uh, bonuses of having uh, handed over the ultimate responsibility of this operation to someone capable uh, is that I get to turn up at other churches from time to time. Uh, and I just thought I'd let you know that Greg and Michelle Hay, formerly of our crowd and still feel like they're part of it and intend to return one day, they're doing an amazing job. I was just so encouraged to see uh, how Sarepta's going, and I sent your love, because those of you who've been around Olive Tree for a while will know that their worship team has often helped us out, uh, and we've done stuff together. So it was just, yeah, it was very cool to go there uh, and, and be together a bit. And on that note, I just wanted to, you know, I've been asked to, oh, this sounds awfully self-indulgent to start talking about the, anyway, just bear with me. Um, at the end of this month, Friday the 29th of July, Hillcrest Baptist host an event uh, from time to time called The Quest for Truth, which is designed for people that don't yet believe in Christ or are skeptical about his claims. Uh, and so it's sort of for all churches and specifically for Christians who have unsaved mates that you think might be open to a conversation about Jesus uh, and about whether thinking people can actually believe in God. Uh, and so we're going to be uh, at that event at Hillcrest Baptist called The Quest for Truth on Friday 29th. Uh, and the topic I've been given to speak about is identity politics. Does the gospel have anything to say in this crazy postmodern world where we all end up struggling to build our identities and then have our identities live alongside social media and live alongside everyone else's opinions about what your identity should be and so on. So I think we're going to find that with a bit of rational thought, you can actually find that the gospel is the solution to the problems of this day and age. Um, and so I would love you to join me, but more importantly than you, I'd love if you know someone that is kind of wrestling with, but does this God stuff really work? That'd be a very cool event and the food is free. Okay, so Philippians. I'm so grateful that we've had uh, a month or so to engage. I've gone through the book many, many times. I'm sure you have as well because it's only two pages in your Bible if the font is small enough. And um, the, the thing I love most about this, I suppose, is that this is not Paul in professional voice, right? This is Paul in personal voice because he's talking to his mates. Uh, so he's not Paul the Apostle in this moment, he's just Paul, our friend, whose ministry we've been supporting. And so if you want to get a feeling for what Paul's really like, and maybe you find him a little severe in other places, Philippians gives you an impression of what happens when someone is just consistently exposed to the gospel for a lifetime. This is who they turn into, which is really inspiring. Um, and we're going to get to, I think, his sort of big sum up and something really cool that I just wanted to leave you with. But there's a little, maybe sort of theological backdrop that sometimes you miss, you know, like the, you don't see the forest because you're looking at the trees. Sometimes I think we cannot notice the big thing going on um, because we're busy looking at the details, which are beautiful and important. Um, and I guess if any of you who want to come on the 29th are here today and you're skeptical about Christ, or you're exploring, then this might be a worthwhile thing to note. Because at the beginning, Paul says in chapter one, you don't have to necessarily find it because I'll go quickly. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's a verse that people often quote, that God will finish what he started in you, which is hugely encouraging. 
But then a little later, he'll say things like, later in chapter 1, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Later on, he'll say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. By chapter 3, he's saying, I want to be found in him uh, so that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Listen to this. Not that I have obtained this already or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Starts by saying, God will finish it, and then says, struggle, strain, strive, make sure, work out. Is the contradiction noticeable to anyone else? What does this mean? Now, there may be two ways to solve this. One quite simple way might have to do with um, a Phoenix accent. Yes, you heard that right, an accent from Phoenix, where people say you all a lot, but in a cooler way than white people can say it. Because it is worth noticing that in the beginning, Paul is using you all quite a lot, y'all. Okay, you knew you wanted me to get there. So he says, um, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So one simple explanation for the seeming contradiction between God will finish it on your behalf, don't worry, relax, he'll take care of it, and strain, is that maybe in this moment, in the beginning, he's speaking in the plural. And later he'll say, work out your own. He literally makes it that clear. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is going to make sense in a second, I promise. There's one explanation for what this tension might be resolved by, which is that God is saying, look, when it comes to churches, when it comes to you all, he'll finish what he started. But when it comes to you individually, make the flipping effort. That might be one explanation, okay? Work out your own salvation Struggle, strain, claim it, put the effort in. But in the macro, in the corporate, God is in control and he'll finish what he started. I don't think that is the only answer, but it's worth just dwelling on that for a second because we live in an incredibly individualistic world, don't we? And we have been told that you get to figure out your faith in a way that suits you yourself. Know you all, just you. That it's between you and Jesus and you get to make it work for yourself and your faith doesn't have to look like anyone else's and your way of doing religion can be completely unique. And Jesus is your personal savior and he is very interested in you personally. But the idea that your faith gets to look very different from everyone else's faith, I'm just not so sure that that's true. You have been put into a corporate story. You have fallen into a big family. And there's a way to be like Jesus, which is not new and novel to you, We've been doing this for 2,000 years, and maybe some of our own Western individualistic pride comes in and we go, well, I want to get to do this in my own special way. And I wonder if this might not be a good opportunity just to have that challenge. No, there's a you all. You're part of something bigger. There's a way to follow Jesus that has been happening for 2,000 years. Uh, You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Perhaps you should submit yourself to the process that people like Paul have modeled for us. Okay, but 
as I said, I don't think that's actually the solution. I don't think it's enough to say, well, God will finish what he started when it comes to churches, but in your own individualistic life, you're on your own. You need to put the effort in. I don't think that's the way to make sense of what's going on here. I think this is one of those beautiful tensions that Paul really, he's a pro at doing this, and he really wants us to wrestle with. Remember, as I was reading a second ago, he said, you know, I'm going to take hold of the thing which Jesus took hold of me for. There is an incredible, subtle tension to the way it's supposed to work between you and God. And again, if you're investigating faith, I think this might be worthwhile for you. There is some stuff that is already true. There's some stuff that is already yours. And yet we're told to still figure out how to make it ours. There's some stuff that God says, I will take care of this. I will do it. You can absolutely rely on me. And then at the same time, he invites you to labor with him. And that tension's not neatly solved. It's not like the you all and the you just takes that tension away. There is this tension that you and I are supposed to live in if we want to live with God, which is that on the one hand, I trust his sovereignty completely. He is in control, which means I can rest easy. But on the other hand, I don't actually fall asleep because he's asked me to take responsibility for some stuff and to get involved the way that I think that looks. It's an imperfect metaphor. But in marriage, you have a contract, covenant if we're being accurate, um, piece of paper to prove it, and then you also have a way of life. It's helpful to me because Paul a moment ago said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So when you get married, your manner of life needs to be worthy of the contract you've just entered into. Something should change about your manner of life. If you stand up and make some promises and you get a piece of paper, but your manner of life doesn't change, then what worth was that piece of paper really anyway? Right? If the next day I don't start sacrificing for my wife, if I don't start training myself to see her beauty in new ways, if I don't make the effort to make space in my life for her and vice versa, if we don't choose one another, then the contract's not worth very much. However, there are times, maybe this is just us because we're so flawed, there are times when no matter how hard I try, or maybe the problem is I'm not trying very hard, I'm not seeing her beauty, I'm just getting frustrated, right? Or there's times when I'm not being particularly sort of giving her space, but I get selfish or we get angry with one another. And in those moments when the manner of life is not worthy of the contract, the contract is hugely helpful because it gets you through those moments. Amen? Anyone been in the, like, you're like, well, nothing in me really is feeling the feels right now, but we still have this piece of paper which is going to force us to just get through this. Like we can't get out of this and tomorrow or the next day, we'll be back to being able to live in a life worthy of the contract we're in. So it's always true. Sometimes you're really experiencing it. Sometimes you're not. And when you're not, it's really helpful that there is this other thing that's just true enough to keep you going. Friends, it's an imperfect metaphor, but I think the tension that we get to live in with God is that the spiritual gifts are already yours, but go and claim them. Provision is already yours, but figure out how to be content and trust Him. That tongues are available, for example. Speaking in angelic language is available to all Christians. But you should still eagerly desire it, and it doesn't seem to happen first time, and that's also okay. He will complete what he started in you, but go make the effort. He will complete what he started in you, but live a life worthy of the gospel. And I don't know how to make that simple, but I think that tension is, is beautiful and important. That we are forever going to be in moments where sometimes we need to be told, relax, he'll finish it. 
But sometimes, maybe we're being so irresponsible, we need to be told, no, strive. You haven't taken hold of it yet. Take hold. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Does that make sense? And so if you as an outsider are looking at it and going, well, some of these Christians seem to be really getting a lot of value out of their faith, and others seem to be pretty garden variety, bog standard humans, like there's not a lot special about them. This is the explanation. It's not that God is holding out on the one or not on the other. You know, the, the patchy Google reviews on Christianity shouldn't worry you. The fact that some are having a five-star experience and some are having a two-star experience is explained by this, is that Christ has taken hold of you, but you still get to take hold of a life experiencing His power. And that happens in patches. Sometimes you're there and sometimes it's just, all I have is this contract. I know that He claimed me. I don't feel it. I don't even know if I want it right now, but the contract will get me through in this moment. And then tomorrow, I'll start figuring out how to take hold again of the thing that He took hold of me for. Helpful? Hope so. Okay. So, Paul, as I said, is not in professional voice here. He's writing to his mates. So that's why I said on three different occasions he says, uh, finally this, and then he goes on, and oh, but actually finally that. So this is one of the finalies, which I think he's sort of trying to come to the point here. Um, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true. Sorry, I'm in chapter 4, uh, verse 8, if you wanted to find it on a phone, because I wasn't organized enough to get the passage ready on the screen behind. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What you have learned and received, heard and seen in me, practice these things. It's a nice symmetry there. There's things that you've learned from Paul, and then there's things that you've received. There's things you've heard him say, and then there's things that you've just seen in him. And I find that a really interesting separation that someone can probably say of any of you, there's things that I've learned from you, and then there's things that I've just received from you. It wasn't like a teaching moment. It was just a transfer. And there's things that I've heard you say, but then there's things that I've just seen in your life. And I suppose I get a little worried when I think about, well, what are the things that people are receiving from my life? What are the things that they're seeing? And the nerve-wracking question for me is, might there be a difference between the things I say and teach and the things that they see and receive from me? And friends, the space between who you really are and who you allow people to think you are, is called stress. The space between who you claim to be, or who you allow people to believe that you are, and then who you worry that you actually are, is called stress. That's insecurity. That's if they were to know who I actually was, if they were to find me out, right? If the game would be up. If the mask were to slip and they'd realize, oh, that's actually what he's like. And the bad news is that people actually see you more clearly than you think. And so Paul's saying, well, I have allowed the gospel to work so deeply in me that what you hear me say, what I say is true, and then what you just catch from my life are one and the same. It's the same thing. There's no difference. Which is, well, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The opposite of stress. 
when I am stressed out, insecure, anxious, I think some of the time that's because there's a person I want to be seen as, right? There's a public persona or there's a lifestyle or there's a reputation I want to maintain. But then it feels like I'm battling to live up to that. There's something that's attacking that facade and making it feel like it's going to crumble. And the distance between who I actually am, what I'm actually experiencing in God, how I'm actually able to live, and the things that I claim is where I lose peace. And I just am fascinated by this idea that all of us have an opportunity to be integrated. That's where the word integrity comes from. That there would be an integration between the public persona, the things you say, the things you teach others, and the things you actually are. The things that you get to, to let people just receive off your life. Oh, sorry. Don't stress about it. Just before that line, Paul's been saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at... Oh, man, there's so much to speak about out of these lines. Anyway, this is the thing I had wanted to point out to you. The Lord is at hand, and don't be anxious about anything. Okay, so once again, it's this tension, or it's this, it's this contrast between a life of anxiety and stress and a life of rejoicing and peace. And so when you are in stress, here's what Paul says you should do. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Okay, so we have to do the put-it-in-your-own-words test here to make sure we understand. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. It sounds a little bit like he's repeating himself, doesn't it? It sounds like, you know, prayer and supplication. Well, what's supplication? Isn't supplication prayer? Isn't supplication asking for stuff? And then later he says, make your requests be known, or let your requests be made known. If you think, or if I thought at first that he was repeating himself, I think it's because I didn't fully understand what prayer is, right? So this is the antidote to anxiety. Do this stuff, Paul says. What is prayer? Prayer is not just asking God for stuff. To be honest, I think our big poverty of prayer is that we think asking for stuff and praying is the same thing. But asking for stuff is a part of prayer. I think quite a small part of prayer. And friends, maybe this is the thing that you need to hear. If you're struggling with that lack of integrity, if who you are able to live as and what you claim you believe in are not quite the same thing, maybe there's a version of praying that is required that we've not yet found. Because Paul speaks a lot about praying in this book. Prayer, my latest definition, <laughs> is this. If I'm able to quieten the needs of my flesh and the offers of this world enough that I'm able to hear the needs of my spirit and the offers of heaven, I'm praying. Right? Your body wants stuff. Your appetites demand things. Your flesh, your human is telling you, I need all these things. And the world is saying, I can provide all these things. And it's very noisy. And prayer is that process of quietening what the world has to say and quietening what your flesh has to say and allowing what your spirit is longing for to actually be heard, and then reminding yourself, well, this is what heaven is about. This is the agenda of heaven. This is what heaven has to offer. That, I think, is prayer. And within that is a place for asking God for stuff. Within that is a place for confessing stuff. Within, within that is a place for praise, worshiping God. 
Within that is a place for telling the world what it ought to be. That's called warfare, when you go, well, this is what it says it's like in heaven, and this is what the world is claiming, and I need some breakthrough. All of that stuff goes on in the place of prayer. And so it makes sense that Paul would say, pray all the time. Specifically, do some supplication, do some asking, and do some thanking. He's not repeating himself. There's a way of praying that I think we get to do a lot of the time. And some of the time while we're praying, you'll be asking for things. But some of the time when you're praying, you're just being with God. Some of the time when you're praying, you're just reminding yourself of who you actually are or what he's actually like or what heaven's really about. Some of the time when you're praying, you're simply taking note of all the desires that you have and you're just turning the volume down on them. That's a part of prayer. That's a legitimate part of the prayer process. It's just going, oh, actually I see that bit of idolatry in myself. Oh, I see that thing that the world is offering me. I'm just going to, shh. And with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a way of living that's available. And it's already yours, but take hold of it. He will complete the job, but strive, live worthy of it. And it's a way that is just filled with peace. In closing, I want to go back to the end of chapter 3 where I think Paul gets quite specific about what we should be receiving from him. He says in verse 17 of chapter 3, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and whom I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. So of all the lovely bits of the books of, of Philippians, this is probably the one text that's like, I don't really want to preach about that. I don't really, like, that's not the part, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We quote those bits. Rejoice in the Lord always. Like, we like that bit. This is like, oh, rather not. So I'm grateful that Matt said, no, try to preach out of chapter three. Because whenever those bad people start being described, the temptation is just to switch your ears off, right? And go, well, that part's not for me. That's for those guys out there who are enemies of the cross. I'm not an enemy of the cross. I go to church, right? Like whenever some preacher starts talking about moral decay or problems and, you know, sin, you're like, oh, so-and-so really ought to be here. I'm going to forward the podcast link. You tend to assume this bit's not for me. But Paul finishes by saying, therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. This bit is for us. He's listing this not to try and make the church in Philippi feel really good about themselves. He's not wasting time describing people that are completely irrelevant to them. He's saying, you guys who love Jesus, who believe in the gospel, should still remember that there is another way to live, which is trying to suck you back into it. So you need to stand firm against it. And that other way of living looks like a God that is being made out of your appetite, right? letting your appetites, letting your stomach become the thing you worship. And a misplaced glory that is 
actually glorifying things that are to your shame. And a mindset that is completely dominated by earthly things. That way of living, where you're a slave to your appetites, where you're boasting about the wrong stuff, and where your mind is dominated by this world, that way of life wants you badly. So stand firm. Because the end to that way of life is destruction and stress and that lack of integrity, that distance between what you say you believe and what you are actually able to live as. I'm sort of caught by that because the first time I read it, I was like, oh, I'm not one of those people, right? I don't worship my stomach. do my best to try to get rid of it most of the time. I'm not glorying in my shame, am I? Or am I? Paul, just before that, has described all the things he used to be able to boast about. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee, doing all these good things for God, was blameless before the law, and now I consider all of that rubbish. So are there some of the things that I think I'm good at, that I am glorying in, which in fact are rubbish, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? Like Paul said a few lines before. Is there some of this good stuff I'm doing for God, or impressive stuff I'm doing for people, or really awesome stuff that I'm doing in my career that I am glorying in, which Paul's going, look in the grand scheme of things. That stuff's to your shame. It's really not impressive. Your great career, your great intellect, your great looks, your great bank account, your great ministry to the church, it's not worth much compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, of claiming His righteousness, which you did nothing to deserve, right? Like, are you glorying in your own Stuff a little. And am I allowing my appetites to start maybe leading the chorus too much? Am I dancing to the tune of what I think I need all the time? And that last line, their minds are set on earthly things. Well, how much bandwidth in your thinking is taken up with earthly stuff? Because it's fair enough to say, oh, well, my mind's not dominated by the world. But if most of the time I'm thinking about putting food on the table, stressing about security, wondering about where to live in order to guarantee myself comfort, getting my kids to do the things I want them to do, controlling the people around. Like, how much of your thought life has to not be about worldly things for you to be able to claim my mind is not dominated by worldly things? Is it enough to just have 10% of the time you're not thinking about worldly things, 15, 20 do you understand the point I'm making? I think most of us are pretty dominated by earthly things. I think most of us are pretty governed by our appetites. I think most of us do glory a lot of the time in things that are actually to our shame. So Paul says, imitate me and keep your eyes on those who walk like I do with minds that are dominated by the Spirit. With minds that go, yes, I see what my flesh wants. Yes, I see what the world needs or has to offer me. But I'm just going to turn the volume down on that stuff. And I'm going to turn the volume up on what my spirit wants. And turn the volume up on what I see as the agenda of heaven. I'm going to pray. I'm going to live a prayerful life. And in that process, I'm going to allow the peace of God to grab hold of me. In that process, I think you end up being able to have what you actually do and what you say become close to one another. That's the sort of final point here. Is that... Of course, you long to be like Christ. You get to live like Christ when you're able to figure out this stuff. I get to live like Christ when I'm able to work out, oh, actually, that's where the world is dominating my thinking. That's where 
my appetites are dominating my thinking. That's where I'm boasting about the wrong stuff. And if I can spot it, like Paul's asking us to do, just therefore, stand firm. Just keep reminding yourself, this is what your spirit wants. This is what heaven has to offer. It's already yours. Jesus has already taken hold of you. Therefore, take hold of it. Therefore, live worthy of it. Because friends, people are always receiving stuff from your life, aren't they? And they're always seeing stuff from your life. And you're going to stand up out of this chair and you're going to have a conversation and someone's going to catch something off you during that conversation. And then you're going to go from that place to the next conversation and something's going to see something from you. And then you're going to go out of that to a family lunch or to work tomorrow. And every room you enter, you are depositing something. And every word you speak has the power of life or death in it. Not only for the people who are listening to it, but for you, if the things you say are so different from the things you actually are. And there's no integrity to it. And so my sort of goal, I guess, for this week, and maybe my challenge to you is, if I'm going to allow my mind not to be not dominated by earthly things, but to be dominated by heaven, captivated by what God is like, then every conversation I go into, every room I walk into this week, I'm going to deliberately deposit something. <laughs> not by accident, but deliberately. I'm going to leave peace. I'm going to leave joy. I'm going to leave faith. I'm going to leave generosity. I'm going to leave these beautiful things because I'm going to be deliberately lining my life up with that so that when you hear me speak or when you just watch my life, when you believe or when you sort of hear the PR about who I am or when you actually receive the truth of what I'm like, they're the same and they bless you because that, friends, is already available to you. That's already who you are. That way of life is already who you are. And so we simply get to claim it more and live worthy of it. And if you're not there right now, you've got the contract in your back pocket, right? He is still yours. You are still his. Even if you're not feeling it, it's still true. But the encouragement is to get back to living in that way. Lord Jesus, we want that. We want the five-star experience of your life and your power in our lives. Like Paul, we'll strain, forgetting what's behind, longing for what's ahead, laying hold of the thing that you grab hold of us for. We want the way we think, the way we feel, the way we behave, all to line up with what's already true of us, which is that we're loved, we're chosen, we're gifted, we're empowered by your Spirit. We're destined for heaven. We're your agents on earth. We're so loved that we don't have to be afraid. We're so loved we don't have to be stingy. We're so loved we're able to love others. So for everyone in this room, however much they do or don't yet know of you, I pray that you pull them into a way of living that is peaceful because there's no integrity lack. There's no stress. Their lives simply get to catch up with the truth of who they already are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.